Reeves? Hi, Maddie. Not much up. Word B. Hard. Why say mini word when few word do, do trick? trick. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like that's where my brain's at yeah. today. I, you know, that's where my brain's at all the time. I like to think that I'm really good with words, but also talking is hard. <laughs> so it's fine. I feel like it's just yeah. gotten more and more difficult the less I do it. Like, I don't talk uh-huh. to people anymore. Yeah. We're inside all the time. I know. And like, I talk to you all the time, but yeah. I feel like we have gotten to a natural form of banter yeah. where like, it's yeah. not real sentences. No. So I leave and it's like, why do mm-hmm. thing be yeah. work? Yes. Yeah. I usually go into most sentences not thinking that I'm actually going to finish the sentence. Like, I feel like when I actually have to finish a sentence, I'm mm-hmm. unprepared. You know? That's like the Michael Scott quote. Yes. Like, oh my God. Yes. I, <laughs> I just that quote. start talking and I find it along the way. Yes. And I'm like, that's a that's mood. That's so accurate. Yeah. Okay. Important question time. I'm ready. If you could live in any, like, fictional universe, like, book, movie, TV, something, what world would you want to live in? Oh. Mm. That is a good question. Um, I feel like it depends on what um, version of, or, like, season of Madison we're in. So, (laughs) currently, (laughs) I am on a big Outlander kick. I want to fall through a rock and live in, like, the 15th century with... A yeah, hot I Scottish so Highlander. Agree. Like, Claire. Claire. <laughs> I uh, love that Sassanach. show. Like that, that is what, that is what. Dinner fish. Okay, done. <laughs> that is what adult Madison wants. Mm-hmm. Young childhood Madison was the most aggressive Twilight fan you've ever mm-hmm. met. And I mean, like, aggressive. <clears throat> um, I also was very much into like all forms of like dystopian novel series. Yes. So God, I loved those types of books. Like I Hunger Games, twi- like yes. twi- honestly probably Twilight because I really <clears throat> like really 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 wanted to be I wanted to be a vampire yeah. so bad. Um mm-hmm. So that, that was that was really my jam. I didn't mind like I like I like Harry Potter. I'm not saying I don't like Harry Potter. How I didn't, dare you first? I'm just kidding. I just <laughs> didn't connect to it in the same yeah. way that I did like the vampire trope. Like yeah. that was a big, big season of my life, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those TikToks where it's like they like it's middle school girls but in our generation and they'll like pretend like go Oh the yeah, they like, draw, to, like dots. draw that yeah, I'm not explaining <laughs> it well, but you knew exactly what I meant. Um, it is there's yes, also that one those. person on TikTok who um they like have like really long hair and they will like curl their hand behind their ear and like whip their eyes back and forth oh, yes, really quick. Yes. And they're I like pretending them. to be the teenager in uh-huh. high school. Yep. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. I or, love that for you. Or the vampire diaries yeah. world. I would Ooh. want oh I I would want to be I basically I would want to be Caroline. Like I would want to be a human oh, yeah. that got better yeah. as a vampire and then just absolutely ruled the world. Like yeah. that is what I would mm-hmm. want ultimately. I love that. I love Vampire Diaries so much. I, like, was so obsessed with Vampire Diaries, probably through season, like, five. And then I just do this thing where I'll stop watching a show, not for any particular reason, but just, Mm -hmm. like, 90% of the shows I start, even if I like them, I don't finish them. Um, So I got, like, most of the way through Vampire Diaries, but, like, was so in love with it that I remember buying the entire season four um, with, like, my Christmas money. As like a ninth grader. And my it mom is. was like, you're going to regret that purchase. I still don't. <laughs> I will I never buy it. regret it. Yeah. 
Oh, it's so good. Okay, well, we got to finish it then. Yeah, I know. Because you're missing some real optimal yeah, characters. I know. I feel like, but like, okay, I was talking to um, our friend Ellen about this recently. It's like, you go back and try to restart it, and it's so cringy because it's so dated now, like their outfits and all that stuff. And like, it's cheap. I mean, like, part of the show mm-hmm. is it's kind of like a little cheap, you know? That's part well, of what you love about those shows. What I will say with Vampire Diaries uh-huh. is I have rewatched that series multiple times. Mm-hmm. The first episode is cringy because it was like the closest yeah. to the book, but truly I think it is aged better than most. Yeah. And you can immediately jump into the originals, which is more updated, and that helps. Yeah. Legacies is the one that I just cannot get into. I'm yeah. trying. I feel like no one talks about that one. It's because it's so cheesy. And also Alaric or the character who plays Alaric is kind of Ew. a jerk. And yeah. so it's like hard for me to like really get into it but i'm trying because apparently they're gonna bring uh damon and elena back so gotta get into it okay see talking about i'm like yeah i need to go finish that show plus you just need to see the ending like i need you to see the fulfillment it has i have no idea how like what happens or anything i think that it is the it is currently my favorite ending to a series Hmm, i think it ends exactly the way that it needs to end yeah um it is everything is wrapped up. You have an idea of what happened. Yeah. It is it is my favorite ending <laughs> that I can recall in this moment. All right. So I guess we're all gonna go watch Vampire Diaries together. All the seasons. We'll start a club. Um <laughs> it relates back to, you know, faith. It does. Anything could, really. I don't know. I mean that there's a lot of conversations that you could have about that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll do an episode. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus um, and the vampire diaries. <laughs> Oh, boy. Um, I don't know what my fictional universe... I feel like it's similar to you. It kind of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very I was very much... I was definitely the person in my family who's the most into Twilight. Mm-hmm. I will say that. But I still wasn't, like, way into it. Um, but our family was really into Harry Potter. So mm-hmm. I definitely went through phases where I was, like... That's probably the, like, universe I was the most invested in for the longest period of time. Um, but I don't know if I'd want to be in Harry Potter, especially not Hogwarts. I don't know. Yeah. We'll die there a lot. Um, well, would you want to be fun. a main character or would you just want to be there? Because there were a lot of students in that mm-hmm. school who were not touched by no, any of the drama. You're right. That's actually a good question. It makes me think of all those people who yeah. do that, like, what is that kind of like astral projecting into like Harry Potter multiverse or something? Yeah. I don't understand it, but oh, yeah. people who have like inserted oh, themselves like into the narrative. There's like a whole side of like TikTok there. <laughs> Dedicated I've to like Harry Potter. i it every once in a while, but not like a ton. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that could be a fun universe in theory. Yeah. I do like the whole, I like sort of like sci-fi type um, fantasy things. Um, I like more the dystopian stuff more, though. I do, too. I think I would rather be, like, in... Okay, I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but did have you ever read the books, like, Pretty's Uglies? I was literally I just about to say I that. I was so in love with those books. I The fact that they had tattoos that yes, moved and you could take them on and so off. so cool. It was, it was oh, so cool. I really want to go back and reread them. Yeah. Also, the middle school version of me was like, I don't care. I'd get that surgery, even though it yes. like, changes their brains. It's There's some tea. But anyways, um, <laughs> I like went back. I went through a phase over like one of my many quarantine phases where I went back and like listened to all the 
audiobooks of like my favorite series mm-hmm. like in middle school um so I like read Twilight and like Harry Potter uh, pretties um ugly specials like the series we're talking about right now um it was like sadly kind of disappointing going back mm-hmm. and it didn't hold up very well like it was very okay it's not that it didn't hold up it was just like like the other ones I read and I was like oh these are still really good like Twilight even mm-hmm. though like I like it is still so like, I went right. back and re-listened to it and was immediately back into that phase. Right. Whereas, like, I re-listened to that with such high expectations, and it did not hold up well. I can see that, though, because yeah. it was one that I feel like was, was very specifically written for an age group. Yeah, that it was isn't. very, like, sixth grade, you know? Mm-hmm. But I still would go back into that book. Like, that whole universe of, like, if you haven't read those books and you love YA novels, go They're read. so good. I think it's by, like, Scott Westerfield or something. They're so so good yes even though i just said that they were bad they were good they were good They're good like i feel like everyone needs to For read sixth them graders. Yeah. like you need to read them at least once to have the understanding because like yes. the it world that they created one. is so yeah. interesting yeah. yeah it reminds me of um so stephanie meyer wrote a book the host. after i love the host i am so obsessed with that <laughs> book okay sorry the fact the way that you just snapped <laughs> to attention i'm sorry i really did i God, I love that. Okay, so I say I wasn't in a huge Twilight phase. It was because I was deeply into the host. The host, and yeah, the host is, it's worth the read. It's very different from God, Twilight. that one held up. It does. Uh, I do so think good. it has been interesting to read Stephanie Meyer from a faith perspective, though, because, oh, yeah. so she's Mormon, and so mm-hmm. a lot of those um, beliefs seep into mm-hmm. her writings. And the host, if you break that one down from a Stephanie theology perspective, there's a lot of really interesting stuff Ooh, that's in there. I could see it. Like yeah, the concept about, like, of the, soul the souls and, and forced Ooh, kind of like yeah. assimilation mm-hmm. and things that we read as problematic. And I'm not so sure that she wrote as problematic, but the book itself, fire. Oh, that's in- Yeah. Okay. Actually, I might have to change my answer. I think I would go into the host. I love <laughs> that book. Oh, it would be a toss up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a goodie. Yeah. Well, speaking of books that we love. Yeah. There's a lot of them. The- in a bound and book, the Bible called the Bible. <laughs> the la bi- the the Bible, the Bible, the Anyway, anyway, here we are. Hello, having a great time. So, um, last episode we talked a lot about how the Bible was canonized and what that really looks like, and um, so this week we're focusing a lot on people's beliefs about the Bible. Yeah. Specifically, like, what is is the Bible, like, does it have any error to it at all? Is it 100% perfect? What is, how do we approach it? Um, What do we believe to be true about it? That kind of thing, which is important because like we talked about last time, you know, recognizing that humans were the people who kind of picked what was bound and how it was bound. There's also influence in how we approach it. In the amount of weight that we give it. And that changes our relationship to it. Oh my gosh, yeah, so much. Because there is this whole debate of like, I don't want to say debate, but there's this understanding within like Western US Christianity, like Protestantism, that like the Bible is 1000% all of it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, like there is no error. So, so it's just, I think it's important to yeah. look at. Yeah, and, and to really understand that train of thought. Because I think... One of the areas that I've historically struggled in the past is I believe that everyone should see the world the way that I see the world, <laughs> you know, growing edges. Yeah. And um, 
And I think we have that same approach to scripture where because we believe something to be true, we expect everyone else to believe that to be true. Yes. And there are actually so, so many ways that people approach and engage scripture from different angles. And I think having an understanding of how we get there helps us to relate to one another and to figure out what we believe and what questions we need to be asking. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not just one approach. There are so many, but I feel like we often just hear the one version. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we're going to talk about like three or four understandings of the Bible and ways that people interpret it or approach it. Mm. We're going to spend a lot of time touching on this idea of biblical inerrancy because that is the one within fundamentalist and evangelical spaces that is the most prominent. And it also, I think, is... um, the major driving force and influence for all of the other understandings of scripture that we see in the Western church. Interesting. So when we talk about biblical inerrancy, what we're talking about is this belief that the Bible is without error. It is faultless. It is absolutely correct in everything that it teaches, or at least that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything, anything that is contrary to fact. So Mm. when we talk about this word inerrancy, what we're talking about is this thing that is free from error. There is no mistake in it. And this is really, really prominent in evangelical circles, more so actually in the United States. So an example, yeah, an example I saw was that British evangelicalism doesn't really put this emphasis on scripture in the same way that we do in the States. That's so fascinating, Mm -hmm. man. I wonder, like, I'm just all about, I think everything goes back to like Puritan culture and just how, wacko a lot of the puritans were i'm sorry if anyone's offended by that but um they just were kind of wild but i wonder if that like goes back how like far back that that's just really interesting yeah i wonder where that happened i do too i haven't done a ton of research on that specific like why that is so prominent here my assumption initial gut assumption is that it has something to do with the way that our structures are designed so because we leverage we live in a society that is what I've seen recently that I appreciate is a Christian supremacy. So Christianity is deemed kind of textbook or standard, even though we supposedly are in a place that is, you know, affirming of all faiths. Yeah. And so this idea that the Bible is 100% true or it's without fault, that's how you get people to do what you tell them it says. And so that's my kind of gut reaction is that to say that the Bible is without error or fault is to say that everything in there is to be followed. And in order for you to know how to follow it, you have to listen to what I have to say. Wow. Ooh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think that's been traditionally my experience within certain evangelical circles is that there is a right or a wrong way to do things. The Bible tells me so, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so therefore this is what we do. But what's more so interesting is that within this argument of inerrancy, there are different variations of what that looks like hmm. because, of course, there's never just like one yeah, one thing. So the most well-known understanding of like biblical inerrancy goes back to this document called the Chicago Statement, and it was formed in 1978 by more than like 200 evangelical leaders, and they came together at this conference with the goal of defending their stance on biblical inerrancy in the face of more liberal or progressive views of scripture. So this was around the time that this movement called the emerging church started, which is what the progressive movement was born out of. Yeah. 
And so this document was like their rebuttal to these growing views of scripture. That's so interesting. It's also fascinating to me Mm -hmm. that the most like commonly discussed or believed version of biblical inerrancy took place in a document that was written in 1978. Like that's pretty recent history. Yeah. You would I don't know. That's just so fascinating to me. Well, and it gives off very, like, I think I've given this example before, but the the example I always come back to as I think about the things I hold really tightly to is this idea of holding, like, my keys in my hand in a closed fist. Yeah. And if my fist is pointed towards the floor, like fingers to the floor, I have to tighten my grip so that I don't lose my keys. Because if I open my hand, they're going to fall. I lose everything. But if I turn my hand and hold it open, I can see things come and go and I don't lose that foundation. And anytime I see something like this, that's like really recent, that's done in rebuttal too. Yes. It's like, so you're just like doubling down your grip on something without considering why that movement exists in the first place. Yeah. Because also when you think of like what was going on in our country at that time, yeah, right. there were so many movements. I mean, this was after the civil rights movement. And there were so many things happening and things changing. I I think you're so right. It was this group of people who were wanting to regain that control. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that is so yeah. interesting. I could think about that all day. Yeah. And so in this Chicago statement, they say that inerrancy applies only to the original manuscripts, mm. which no longer exist. But they like adamantly claim that they can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. So the original documents are perfect, Mm. but what we, but we don't have them. So what we do have is basically the exact same thing and should be treated the exact same. I'm sorry. I have a lot of questions about that. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. It does not add up. You know, like, like this thing, we're going to say it's the original and then not really break down the fact that like it was translated how many times. So what we have is the same. Well, what happens when you have two different languages who don't yeah. translate the same word the same way? Uh-huh. What you have as a evangelical English speaking white male yeah. might be the same for you. Yeah. Uh, it's just a thought. <laughs> so oh, man. then it goes on to say that inerrancy does not refer to a blind literal interpretation Mm. and that history books are treated as history books. Poetry is poetry. Hyperbole is hyperbole, metaphor, generalization and approximation as what they are and so forth. So they do recognize that within the Bible, there are different types of books. Okay. You should read them as those books, (laughs) but then signers deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual and religious or redemptive themes and are exclusive of ascertainment. Assertions in the fields of history and science. So we further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may be properly used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation in the flood. So what they're saying is read everything as it is in the Bible, but don't just stop at the spiritual truths you gain from it. Science, like modern science, anything you're being told that isn't in the Bible isn't real. Like it's just the creation is a mindset of like inerrancy isn't restricted to themes it is also like when you read a history book in the Bible, this is history. This is what happened. Wow. So it's saying like it is it is perfect. And like there obviously is a space where this is how people came to believe yeah. this is true and whatever. And I and I don't want to um necessarily attack anyone's theology and what they believe. Mm-hmm. For me, 
this is a really frustrating yeah. thing, understanding that like the Bible is like the works within the Bible are more complex yeah. than just taking them at surface value. And yes. so many of those stories, taking them literally kills yes. the beauty of them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And just, okay. So I, I want to make sure I understand this right. They're saying essentially with that, um, that quote you just read that there is no truth outside, like outside of the Bible, like my, I don't want to speak to that necessarily and okay. say a hard yes or no. My understanding of it is we further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. So what they're saying okay. is that okay. like modern science cannot debunk something. That, okay. I like, get what you're it saying. It is what but it is. But that's still like a wild. Yeah, yeah. The fact that like we know things now that can prove that like certain mm-hmm. things didn't happen the way that the Bible says. But right. But because it says that, then mm-hmm. it's not true. Yeah. And so Interesting. In- instead of approaching yeah. it from an understanding of like, now that we have more evidence, we can engage this in a new way. Yeah. yeah. And give a new broader understanding. Yeah. It's, oh, this is a threat. Don't believe it. Yes. So that's so fascinating. Yeah. So that's like the one that I feel like most of us are really have experience with or yeah. familiar with. Yeah. We know someone who, you know. There's also breakdowns within this. So then you have textus receptus onlyism. What a I yeah, <laughs> which it basically says the Greek text is a perfect and inspired copy of the origin scripture and supersedes earlier manuscripts. So the Greek text is superior to everything else That's when you're talking about like you know, inerrant word. And then you have the King James movement that says that King James is superior to all versions. I mean, it is. Well, it does. <laughs> According to them, it needs no improvements. Yeah. Um, oh, and God. anything Can made after imagine? that is corrupt. So any translation after the King James version is a corrupt version of the Bible. So I'm just throw away the message. Yeah. I refuse. I mean, King James is so, it's just, it's so dry. It's yeah. so boring. But it's perfect. So you're right, Maddie. It's perfect. I, I really need to only use that yeah if you read anything else yeah sinner mm-hmm. and of course the greek would be superior to the original language it was right you know right because <laughs> you know <laughs> colonialism oh geez um, well, we love it yeah. um so this idea of the bible being error free actually wasn't something that really started forming until after the reformation Ooh. So, yeah, which I think maybe plays into even this knowledge of Luther having a lot of influence over what books were and were not in the Bible. Mm. Because there was a recognition of discrepancy in the Gospels, for example, but it was seen as irrelevant to theological importance. So there's a quote by, um, I'm going to say this wrong, but um, Origin of Alexandria. Yeah. And they said, let these four Gospels agree with each other concerning certain things revealed to them by the Spirit Mm -hmm. and let them disagree a little concerning other things. Yeah. So Luther, Calvin, theologians like Jerome, who we've talked about, who Mm -hmm. went back and forth with Augustine a lot, which, you know, we love because Augustine's a person whom God loves. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But they didn't really believe any of this to be true. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so this idea of the Bible being error-free came up because of the Protestant mm. approach, and it developed out of this Catholic-Protestant debate back and forth. That is so interesting. Yeah. Which also makes sense, because if the Catholic yeah. Church is superior to everything, or is running everything, and then you have this force coming in, challenging the way that they use scripture to engage the community, 
Yeah. You need it to be infallible otherwise or inerrant because. Yeah. God, that's so fascinating. Yeah. At least that's my interpretation. Protestants are whack. We're fun. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So then as we go on, we start to see this resistance to accepting stories like creation, for example, as being 100% true. And so that's where in the 70s and 80s we get this dialogue around, you know, if the Bible is inerrant and totally true, um, you know, how do we kind of reclaim the spotlight? And so we start to see seminaries switch from this idea of inerrancy to infallibility. Um, and so that's when Princeton or Fuller formally indo- adopt infallibility doctrine and reject an errancy doctrine, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I feel like with specifically like the creation passages, I know I had a lot of um, professors that would talk about how, I mean, there's two different creation stories there. Right. So you can't look at those stories and say that it's 1000% fact because you've got two different stories being told in the same like first three books. But the thing is when, when people read those with the Bible being perfect, they read that as one story. Yeah. And so then you're not thinking about, well, where did the wives come from? Yes. Well, yeah. And it's fascinating because I like my professors would pull that out and be like, how can you say the Bible is 1000% true? If you look and there's two different stories and people would be like, I had no idea there's two different stories because we don't talk, Mm -hmm. we like brush over that fact to right. like fit the story that we want right know? interesting yeah and so you know this this shift out of inerrancy that started to happen again you know it was met with a lot of resistance on more evangelical fundamentalist conservative mm. ends and so this is where we start to see like the southern baptist church eventually takes mm. on this idea that it is both inerrant and infallible wow. doubling down on their stance really pushing back which I think for me, like the one piece that I always get frustrated about in Christian history is the fact that when we get to something that is like a point of contention, we just completely shut down the other person. Yeah. You know, like there is no conversation about how did you come to that conclusion? Yes. What, what, like, let's talk about it. It's just like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that wasn't. Jesus didn't. Jesus had conversations with people and allowed them to believe what they believed, even if. Yeah. You know, and he didn't love them any differently if they didn't agree with what he had to say. And I yes. think that this mindset as a whole in church history of like, oh, well, you don't believe what I believe. So we can't, we have to be like fighting each other all yeah. the time is just so counterproductive. Yes. And hurtful. Yeah. I feel like it also shows just like how fragile our egos are as Christians yeah. because like we have to be right. How, like, if we're wrong, then everything around us crumbles, you know? So, but we've lost this ability to, like, exist in that tension of, like, Mm -hmm. not having all the right answers. And, like, we've lost the ability to have conversations on, like, how did you get to that place? Instead of attacking and trying to, no one wins from a debate. Like, we Mm -hmm. don't try to have meaningful conversation around it. Instead, we shut down and cut people out and walk Mm -hmm. away. Well, and to me, it comes back to, to that root, that we've talked about before, which is like, what is, what is the foundation of what you believe? Yeah. And how do these pieces play a part in it? Because I think yeah. if, if your entire belief system is rooted in this book is inerrant and 100% without error. And so therefore I follow everything that it says and I'm never questioning why it says, yes. you know, certain things, then I don't know. There's, there's gotta be some like a missing piece there. And yes. it very much reminds me a lot of, um, 
you know, the anxiety. So the, the study around like death anxiety. Mm, interesting. And, and so, um, this idea that like when we're confronted with the knowledge of death as whole, as a whole, um, we can become very, very aggressive and anxious about it. Ooh, and so anything that kind of challenges system of beliefs that we've kind of revolved our entire life around, there's this fear of death, right? Oh, Even within God. the church, yep. it makes us aggressive. Yes. And that's why I think it's there. I mean, there's a ton to unpack yeah. there as well, but yeah. I think <laughs> that there's a lot at play with this idea that we use fear and shame oh around God. our relationship to yep. scripture. And so then if you challenge it, people it like forces people to confront things they're not prepared to confront and it yes. causes them to become more aggressive mm-hmm. oh my gosh wow I, yeah i feel like there is so much there just because like we do not deal with death well as christians at all which is ironic because we serve a god yes. who oh my <laughs> supposedly god. conquered just, death yeah that's you know? a whole other conversation but yeah just this i think that's so true we become aggressive so quickly because it starts to make us think about things that like we've been taught this is 1000% truth. So when that starts to be in question, mm-hmm. we're not prepared for it because we're taught we can't ask questions and there's so much shame around it. Like, oh my gosh, if we could just get out of that shame spiral and yeah. start to hold more space for questioning, like I feel like the possibilities open up so much. Yeah. Oh. So in this, this argument, right, that the Bible is, is without error, um, a lot of the time people plug second Timothy three sixteen that all <laughs> scripture is God breathed, which you hear it now mm-hmm. and put a little pin in it. Cause we're going to yeah. come back to this one later as God, well. The but, amount of times I've heard that quoted when it comes to like study your Bible and yeah, got it. Yeah. It's yeah. all the time. Right. And so yeah. this idea is like God is perfect. And so therefore yeah, yeah, yeah. if the Bible is God breathed then the Bible is perfect and free from error, but you know, many think that the Bible makes no claim to be inherent. So theologian C.H. Dodd argues that the same sentence can also be translated, every inspired scripture is also useful. Mm. Nor does the verse define the biblical canon, which scripture refers to, yes. because canon wasn't created <laughs> yeah, until, until later. later. Yeah. So so oh, understanding God. that, like, to, to approach something as God-breathed or inerrant in some way, mm-hmm. like, you have to address the timeline in that. Yeah. There's arguments that ought to support it that Jesus used the Old Testament as a way to assume that it's error-free, right? So in mm, Matthew, he says, For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all will be fulfilled. King Sorry, James. I love me some chicken. Gotta love King James. James. Uh, but basically this tittle. idea that like everything will mm-hmm. be fulfilled, right? Yeah. Well... Like, there's also conversation around what this is actually saying and mm-hmm. that that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Holy Spirit inspired. And so they spoke through prophets. And so it must all be accurate. And every yeah. word is a direct yeah. word of God. And so it holds authority. And, you know. Yeah. And so the bigger question to think about, if you're going to argue that, you know, Scripture is God-breathed, mm-hmm. is that Christ is named as the Word of God. Ooh. So if the words mm-hmm. that are recorded by humans are inerrant, then how does that work out? Is it the words that are recorded that are error-free or is it Christ that is error-free? Interesting. And how does that change our understanding of what it means for scripture to be error-free? Wow, I love that. Yeah, because I always, I love when, um, like in the Bible, when they see Christ described as the word because I do think that opens up so many more, Mm -hmm. like, possibilities of, like, it is more about, like, Jesus and the character of who Jesus was Mm -hmm. 
and maybe less about like the actual because like you said i mean the actual bible itself came decades later mm-hmm. like it, not even decades centuries like right. yeah it just oh that's so interesting well and that's kind of what i have seen to be that point of contention between more evangelical fundamentalist and more progressive yeah. understandings is the progressive movement puts a much higher emphasis on modeling the life of jesus yeah. over and above like maintaining all of these other kind of institutional pieces. Yes. And I think that within more fundamentalist spaces, I've seen more of an emphasis put on scripture, often to a point where scripture is like elevated to a comparable Uh, space with God, which then becomes problematic because have you idolized scripture in a way that like isn't healthy. And so I think this like spectrum of totally Christ, totally scripture somewhere in the middle, people kind of ebb and flow as they learn more. Yeah. But the argument is rooted in, well, Christ is the word of God. Well, scripture is the word of God. Well, which one of these? That's interesting. I've never thought of it as being sort of that defining space between Mm -hmm. like, where do you fall in that spectrum? That's really interesting. I mean, that's my observation anyway. Yeah. No, I could see that. I could see that though. Yeah. Yeah. So then you step into translation issues, right? Like we touched about a bit. Um, (laughs) An example of this, right, is the Greek and Hebrew inconsistencies around the idea of a virgin birth. And this is something that comes up a lot in this conversation about the Bible being error-free. Yeah. Specifically, the Western Protestant (laughs) Bible that we use today. So it's thought by some that virgin itself is a translation error. So in Matthew 1, 22 to 23, it's listed that the virgin will give birth. And the author is quoting Isaiah, but the Greek text being used was possibly mistranslated in the word Alma. So the actual translation would be young woman. And the early writers show no knowledge of a virginal conception when we're reading about this. So that's interesting. So again, like not to say anything either way, obviously like there is emphasis in our theology around a virgin birth. And if the Bible is without error, then this is an irrelevant point. Right. But if it's not, this is a massive mistranslation because we have built entire pillars of our theology around a word that was mistranslated. Oh my gosh. And I mean, not even to mention just elevating virginity above, like emphasizing that and beating that with the horse. Well, creating a horse. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) Beating that dead horse. With that horse. Yeah. Well, and not to mention as well that this idea of, you know, Mary being a virgin mother, like it creates this ideal of motherhood that isn't attainable for anyone, right? Yeah. And so there's just standards set for women across the board based off of this word that are deeply problematic. Yeah. And if it's mistranslated and the Bible is not without error, then it's eventually something we're probably going to need to have a conversation oh, one, about. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And again, another point for me that says, you know, what is the root of what you believe? Like, what is that core touch point? Because... If it is founded on the inerrancy of this book, then you're going to run into a lot of problems. Yes. So like, what is the spiritual root to things? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Because if you're holding so tightly to one specific ideal, but then we find out that like, you know, it was a mistranslation or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I just think that's so important to figure out what is the core of what you believe and the why behind what you believe it. Because as we are seeing through this like research and just like how the Bible is put together in the Bible as a tool, like 
it's not, I mean, there's so much that goes into it. It was written by humans, put together by humans, argued by humans, like over and over and over again, translated and transcribed by humans. Like there's just, it's, it was a very complex, it is a very complex piece of literature. And so there's so much that goes into beginning to unpack that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So that is biblical inerrancy. So then you begin to branch into this concept of infallibility, Mm. which is either a counterpart or in opposition to inerrancy, depending on how you come at it. So infallibility is actually seen as stronger than inerrant Hmm. because to be infallible means there can be no errors. Like it is just, it is physically impossible for this to have an error. So not just that there aren't any, but it cannot happen. So the biblical integrity enhances then because it says that the Bible is complete and it does not fault. So the integrity of the text has never been corrupted or degraded because it cannot be. Yeah. So uh, what exactly, can you just like break down for me really quickly? What is the like difference between infallibility and inerrancy? Mm -hmm. So inerrancy is that the Bible is without error. It just doesn't have any. Infallibility, to my understanding, takes it a step further to say that because it is God, it is impossible to even consider that it would have an error. Mm. Like, like at least in inerrancy, there's like conversation around different pieces maybe that were translated or like a point of like everything after this point is Oh, yeah, because that was more like the Greek or whatever yeah. it was like. This is saying that specific. like across okay. the board, no matter what, scripture will never have an error ne- in it. Okay. It will never I've fail. It will you. never be wrong. Okay. It's yeah. like yeah. really intense. Yeah. Like take it and just like throw it up <laughs> just to a level a little, 10. Yeah. <laughs> a little spice. in there. Yeah. So again, it was born as a fundamentalist reaction against progressive movements in the 70s and 80s so it's like when when this kept going it was yeah. like well take it up a notch yeah. fellas and yeah. let's well i mean that's sort of like when our conversation around um the prohibition was right. the initial conversation was like moderation and how do we like have a relationship with alcohol and then people came in they were like well let's take it a little step further and then all of a sudden there was all this propaganda about like if you drink you'll die and you'll spontaneously combust and it just like it went 1,000 steps ahead of where the initial conversation went we really like to put a little extremism in everything as Christians honestly we're a little uh intense people yeah (laughs) angsty Something like that. So then, you know, you keep going. You find biblical literalism, literalism, (laughs) which is this idea that we take scripture completely literally. It's totally true. It's not metaphorical at all. It goes with inerrancy, right? That the Bible is literal. To prove it's without error, you have to take it exactly at face value. Um, Unless it is clearly marked as poetry or allegory, it is an actual statement. So creation, Noah's Ark, Jonah, and the whale, all of it. and again, this is affirmed in the Chicago statement. Mm-hmm. I struggle with this so much because to believe that this is true is to also not just admit some of the more like grotesque and horrifying things that have yeah. happened in the Old Testament, but it's also to say that like you believe in like sea monsters and stuff. Yeah. Like you believe in 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 like giants. And when you sit yes. someone down and you're like, well, then you believe in sea monsters. And they're like, well, no. Then I'm like, then you don't believe that the Bible yes. is literal. Yeah. Because that is in <laughs> yeah. there. So are we cherry picking now? Yeah. Yeah. And again, like the whole idea of like there's two different creation stories and things like that. Like it becomes so 
complicated because like I've always been taught that like the you know a lot of the very beginning of the Old Testament is supposed to be like God's stories like it's about mm-hmm. who the character of God is and what it's saying about God and not so much like literal fact right mm-hmm. so you know it's like you you really have to think about if you're going to say you're a biblical literalist you are saying that you support the stoning mm-hmm. of people for mundane things you support sea monsters you support this idea like yeah. uh, i mean just like some really genocide like there are things yeah. that you are aligning yourself with that I think are worth really thinking about, like, do you actually believe in that? Yeah. And why? Yes. Um, Because that's a conversation worth having. Absolutely. And, like, I don't know. I always think about the fact that, like, the Bible is an ancient text. Right. And, you know, there is so much, like, context that goes behind it. But also, like, you know, this isn't really on the same page. But, you know, I think of all the other ancient texts I've had to read in school. And if you took those extremely literally. Yeah, come on. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking about. Like, if I read it, like, I would, like, if I read the Odyssey, like, it was in, I don't know. It's again, there's something with the timeline of the Odyssey as well, where it's like actually, like, there are thematic things that are the same. Yeah. Because those stories and all that. yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you go to other, like, cultures and their origin stories using creation as an example, you find floods, you find yeah, gardens, yeah. you find all of these things because they were oral traditions. Yeah. And in telling stories, you also begin to pull from the spaces as you migrate. And yeah. that's like, that is how those things are created. Mm-hmm. And to devalue the science and the art and the, um, the beauty of how as humans, we have collectively kind of put these stories together through relationship. Yeah. Like, to say that something is completely literal and to write all of that off, I think is such an underappreciation mm-hmm. of the Absolutely. human experience, yes. not to mention it's just harmful. Yes. Because also, I mean, as we talked about in the previous episode with the gospels, I mean, it was so heavy on oral tradition, which like I believe would be very true of a lot of the old Testament books of like mm-hmm. it's oral tradition before you write it down. Um, and like such a big part of that is just the idea of storytelling and, so much of oral tradition is about like the ideas behind it and not so much like the factual. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's not to say it's not important. You know, there's still Mm -hmm. stuff to learn from it. Um, But yeah. Yeah. Mm. So we have all of that kind of sitting on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other, you get the understanding of biblical inspiration, which is really Mm -hmm. where a lot of the progressive movement pulls their understanding. Mm -hmm. And so this is the idea that human authors and editors were influenced by God, which in some ways might make it the word of God, maybe not capital W word, but it is the word of God. But the key word is that it's inspired. So it's the idea that people felt spirit led to write these things down Mm -hmm. or to record them. Which also, again, plays into 2 Timothy 3 and is an example of how interpretation is so important because the Mm. same verse is used to justify both arguments. Yeah. Yeah. And so (laughs) if you want to take biblical literalism, then we can literally take it this way because interpretation is so key in how you bring your stuff to the table to understand what's going on. I mean, I think that is just a perfect example of how the same verse can be used for (laughs) the opposing Literally everything, yep. Uh, Interpretation's everything. It is, and and I, I, it makes me think of this comment that I got on a a TikTok at one point, and it just kind of, like, really stuck out to me, and I was like, I don't, mm, 
I, I struggle with this because I know that this is what is taught and it's told in so many places and I just so disagree with it. And it was that, you know, we can't trust our emotions. We can't trust our emotions. Emotions are bad. We can't trust our emotions. You have to control Stuff your emotions. Deep, um, and, and then you die. Yeah. It, well, and it's like, like, no. Like, yeah. like you are a human and emotions yes. were created with a, a purpose. And like, yeah. I think the things that you feel are signals in how you navigate every area of yes. your life. And to take emotion completely off the table is to take away the very thing that makes you, you mm-hmm. and gives you autonomous thought yes. gives you like, you know, and, and to just like shove it away when you're reading scripture, especially, I think it's super oh harmful. Gosh, yes. Yeah. Like you need to know when you're reading about something as horrifying as a genocide in the old Testament, yes. that you feel some kind of way about that. Yes. Please have feelings about you know? that. Oh like, my gosh. Yes. It's, it's okay to go. That really was not cool. Like when we think God isn't capable, of handling our emotions and yet god created us to have emotions yeah why would like why would we have emotions if we're not supposed to feel them yeah and it's just like so unhealthy like yes it's just like all the things Mm -hmm. and you bring that to the table when you interpret scripture yeah yeah like you gotta listen to your emotions that one that one really bugged me Mm -hmm. but and i think it's all about balance too Mm -hmm. of like there's you know, um, like head, heart, hands. Right. Like we've got to have the emotions. We've got to have the head and we've got to have like the action, but like, you know, they all work together. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's like emotional intelligence and health exactly. as well. Like we like, don't need to just bury down those emotions, mm-hmm. but like 100% listen to them as signals and signs of like what's sort of going on. Right. Yeah. Especially to like the other, the last piece on this that I will harp on is mm-hmm. that, you know, God didn't just like show up as a hypothetical or God didn't just show up in a bound book that fell from the sky. God showed up in a human body yeah, and lived a human life. And in yeah. the New Testament, we have record of Jesus expressing oh my gosh, big yes. emotions, yes. like significant emotions. Yes. And I think like to downplay our own feelings is to mm-hmm. downplay the experience of Christ. Yes. And in this conversation, it could be argued that you are then disagreeing with scripture and the validity of human emotion yes. because you're disagreeing with those scriptures which say Jesus felt such an intense level of stress that he bled, bled yeah. sweat, sweat yes. blood. Yes, I I so agree. And I feel like my favorite, honestly, parts of the Gospels are when we see Jesus displayed mm-hmm. emotion because emotions have always been hard for me and I'm now learning how to be an emotionally intelligent human yep. who values my emotions instead of burying them down deep. I lo- Okay, I love that John Mulaney bit where he's like, um, you bury down your emotions and then you die. And he's like, <laughs> yep, bury the boy. But yeah, anyways, I think of that a lot because that is me. Oh, me too. It, yeah. I mean, it's it's an ongoing process for yeah. sure. And yet, yeah. like, I think to, to, like, downplay the things that we bring to the table when we read scripture for me is so, like, it ruins the point of yeah. bringing anything to the table. So yeah. feel the things you need to feel and bring them to the scripture. Yep. Um, and so... There's also, again, like Jerome, our Mm -hmm. pal Jerome, like Mm -hmm. he, like they agreed with this um, and pushed this idea that when we talk about scripture being God breathed, it's that it's being breathed into Mm -hmm. to instill like this, these words into someone. And the counter of that is that it's being breathed out of the writer. Mm -hmm. So that's where also you get that difference in translation. Yeah. 
is that from an understanding that scripture is inspired, but it's not necessarily like it's human words recorded. Yeah. It's that the spirit breathed a thought into a person and they recorded it. Mm. The flip of that is that the thing that came out of the person is God. And so therefore the words are infallible. And so depending on how you approach that word, yeah. it changes how you understand that verse. God, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, it was also very common for like church founding fathers to refer to writings to one another that weren't canonized. Mm. Um, and so, you know, again, we see different things like Bible stories where someone receives inspiration or the prophets. Yeah. And yeah. again, C.H. Dodd said that everything is probably to be rendered as every inspired scripture is also useful. So like mm. there are, there's use in everything. And so this common yeah. view from progressive or liberal Christianity is that the Bible is a sacred text, just not one that presents as an unaltered word of God. Mm. So it's divinely inspired mixed with elements that can be inconsistent or that are rooted in more of a cultural understanding that we no longer carry. So Brueggemann is one of the names that came up. Yeah. Love their stuff. Walt Brueggemann. Oh, oh read a ton. Um, but yeah, which I mean, as one might possibly tell is where I definitely fall on this understanding of oh, things. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, like crazy. Um, How dare you? I know. It's like, and, and it's it's interesting too, especially being like a young person yes. in the candidacy process mm. because I think that like everyone believes something a little bit different mm -hmm. about this. And it's really like I'm in a season where the pressure is being put on of like, what do you believe about this? Yeah. And because the more fundamentalist view is the one that's like pushed the most often, sometimes it's hard to be like, you know, I think that it, yes. I mean, it's, it's sacred. Mm -hmm. My relationship to it changes a lot because there are a lot of other things that I found to be sacred in my life. And because I don't view it as something that to me f often feels very idolized, like it's a, it's a resource to me, but I also have an appreciation for the cultural understanding, the things that no longer really fit. Um, and I try to hold that tension as best I can. But I think, yeah. like, it's it's interesting to watch it evolve and to try to figure out how to navigate that conversation without pushing yes. fundamentalism. Because Christianity, as we know it, is so rooted in that. Yes. Well, yeah, I think that's so true about, like, it's kind of hard to say what you feel because, like, mm -hmm. the narrative we hear the most is the, like, more fundamentalist version of like everything is true it's literal um because I feel like I went through I won't say like a I don't think I I would call it a fundamentalist phase but I would say it's it was a more like I went through a phase where scripture was very much like I read it as everything was more literal. I won't say completely literal, but I remember having conversations with friends, friends sort of during that phase where I, um, they were giving me these arguments of like, well, you know, I think that like it was written by humans and it's kind of messy. And I was like, I don't know. Like, anyways, I just, yeah. I remember like being in those places where it was a little more, um, I this I struggled specifically with my relationship with the Bible. It took me a long time to start to be okay with the fact mm -hmm. that it was written by humans and complicated, and that doesn't necessarily mean that like I don't still find it super valuable. Right. I just it's you hear this one the most, 
even though mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist household, you hear this the most of like scripture is everything and God mm-hmm. breathed and divinely inspired and like all these things. Um, so it's yeah. hard to unpack that. Yeah. I think the, the concept that helped me the most, because the question I always found myself asking is like, why is it even relevant? Like, why do I need to read this? Mm. Because I, you know, I have a, a grasp of things, right? Like you feel like because you hear the ongoing narrative that you know what it says and what I have come to found come to find is that most of the time I don't actually know what it says mm-hmm. <laughs> because it does change. And that's where I do believe that it is a, a living document in that as I live and I bring a new lived experience to the mm-hmm. text that the text yeah. then can take on a different kind of meaning. Yeah. Um, I think it's very similar to a lot of other other mediums and other ways that people use intuition in order to navigate or to connect with God. Like I think that that same thing can apply in scripture. Mm. Um, And I think the big thing that really helped me was understanding that the Bible is full of truth, although it might not be full of fact. Mm. Um, And how, like how vital that understanding is that there are things that are inherent truths Mm-hmm. Um, and stories that we tell each other as a current modern society all the time that are full of truth. That's all mm-hmm. folklore is, right? Yeah. Are stories that we created to to push a level of truth. And I yeah. think, you know, the same with scripture, that there are stories in there that may not be totally factual. Yeah. Um, they may be partially factual, you know, but there, but there, there's truth to it. I think the Christmas extor- story is, like, one of my favorite examples in that, like, they're not all telling the same story, but there are foundational similarities in both of those stories because Mm -hmm. that is the only fact that needed to be true. Everything else is the truth of what that speaks to you in that time and like what it has to say for you. And I think, um, I think just appreciating that helped me to see that like there is so much value to scripture and it is such an important work and it's something Mm -hmm. that I definitely think needs to be read and integrated and appreciated it's just understanding your relationship to it so that you're able to do that well yeah absolutely I think that is so powerful that um I'd never thought of it with those words of like full of truth but not necessarily fact but that is very much how I approach the bible as well is just like you know when I read anything it's like well what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about God's relationship with human? Um, how do I like, you know, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that to me is the main like takeaway is sort of how do I view God in this? What does this tell me about that God's character or Jesus and his character? And um, not so much about everything in there being like literally true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you know, what what it really all kind of comes down to is like your your relationship to to this work. And if you believe it to be inerrant or to be infallible, um, cool. You know, I think one of the best things I got from um, our friend Abby Smith, who we met on mm-hmm. TikTok, um, mm-hmm. is something she said once, which is um, that, you know, she doesn't care what you believe so long as you can back it up. Yeah. Like if you can say like, I've thoroughly studied this and this is what I believe to be true. Cool. Like we don't have to agree on everything. Yes. Um, there just needs to be a common level of respect and understanding yes. that like, I might not agree with what you agree. Yeah. Believe. Um, and yeah. I think so much of that is influenced by like the things that we bring to scripture, the way that we legitimately study it and our own 
individual studying and appreciating of scripture outside of what we're being told by leaders because yeah. we also don't ask enough questions yeah. of our leaders. Yeah. No, I feel like that is like the such an important piece that we miss so often is just the ability to like it's okay that we don't agree the same way on everything. We're not going to. We have so many different opinions. The church has had so many different opinions since the beginning of all of it. You know, they couldn't even agree on which books belong in it. We have so many different canons. Like, it's just, you know, yeah. and that's okay. Like, there's... It's okay. It's okay to appreciate the humanity of Scripture. Yeah. Like, I, like if we can appreciate the humanity of Christ then we can appreciate the humanity within ourselves and we can appreciate the humanity yeah. of scripture. Like I think when we try to create so much distance between ourselves and the divine, we negate the fact that the divine tried to close that gap. Yeah. And so Ugh. like, let it be <laughs> what it is yeah. and appreciate it in every season that you're in and allow it to serve you in the way that it was intended to. Ah, mm. uh, so good. Wow. Mic drop. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah. So well, friends, thank you for listening. Um, you can continue asking questions and joining in on this conversation on social media. Follow us on oh God at oh God Pod. Um, yeah, we love having conversations mm -hmm. with you. And like let us know your your understanding or relationship yes, as well. And like We'd love what to know. what maybe some of those like defining kind of pieces were for you, what stuck out, um, mm -hmm. what you might've researched that we didn't find. Like this is certainly an ongoing conversation. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah, hit us up. Let us know what's mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. Woohoo. Maddie and Reeves are both faith leaders, and the following conversation reflects their standings and beliefs, not those of their place of employment.